everyone. You're listening to The Katie Helper Show, and I'm your host, Katie Helper. If you like the show, please leave us a five-star review on iTunes. And as always, remind you that this show could not happen without the support of our listeners. To support the show, visit patreon.com slash the Katie Helper Show, where for just $1 a month, you can help make the show happen. And for $5 a month, you'll qualify for great bonus content, including an alternative podcast feed and rarely seen clips that aired on our live shows. Hello, everyone. Hello, and welcome to The Katie Helper Show. We are so excited to be here tonight. We have an amazing show. We have two amazing guests. We have Chris Hedges joining us, and then we also will have Phyllis Bennis joining us. And they have two recent pieces that are both just excellent pieces about what's happening now in Russia and Ukraine and how we got here and also what is to be done, so to speak, uh, moving forward. And Chris Hedges, just everyone probably knows this, but before I bring on Chris Hedges, just want to remind people that they can like the stream. Everyone just like the stream. That helps with the algorithm. And of course, subscribe to the channel. Just press subscribe and press the bell. You can also become Patreon supporters at patreon.com slash the Katie Helper Show. Again, that's patreon.com slash the Katie Helper Show. So you can see our full interviews that we do. I released a really great interview this weekend with Yasha Levine, the Soviet-American immigrant writer who talks about Russia, Ukraine, NATO, the Azov Battalion, the neo-Nazi battalion. And I actually recorded that with him Wednesday evening before the invasion. So it's really interesting to hear now. And you can find all of that and more at patreon.com slash the Katie Helper Show. You can also become members of the Katie Helper Show on YouTube. And if you do that, you get cool emojis and badges. So everyone, everyone stop what they're doing. Everyone right now, just hit the like button. I love you guys. You love the show. There are probably some haters out there, but most of you aren't hate watching this. So make sure that you like this. So I'm going to bring on our first esteemed guest. Chris Hedges is a Pulitzer Prize winning journalist who for 15 years was a foreign correspondent for the New York Times, serving as the Middle East, as well as the Balkan Bureau Chief. He previously worked overseas for the Dallas Morning News, the Christian Science Monitor, and NPR. He is the host of the Emmy Award-nominated RT America show on Contact. So let us bring Chris onto this stage. Hello, Chris. How are you? I'm good, Katie. Thank you so much for joining us. Sure. Uh, you have a great recent piece that caused a little bit of a fight among my friends and family. My mom decided to text. She didn't do an email. She did like a, a mass text, a group text, and texted out your article. And so there were strong opinions, and uh, we had to we had to actually kill the chat because it was a little too hostile. But that's always a sign of a great writer. Great ideas, very provocative ideas. But you have a, a very sensible, I would say, piece that sadly uh, you can't find uh, this perspective most places. It's at Shear Post, which is the website run by the great Bob Shear. It's called Chronicle of a War Foretold. After the fall of the Soviet Union, there was a near universal understanding among political leaders that NATO expansion would be a foolish provocation against Russia. How naive we were to think that the military industrial complex would allow such sanity to prevail. You start out your piece, you write, I was in Eastern Europe in 1989 reporting on the revolutions that overthrew the ossified communist dictatorships that led to the collapse of the Soviet Union. It was a time of hope. NATO, with the breakup of the Soviet empire, became obsolete. President Mikhail Gorbachev reached out to Washington and Europe to build a new security pact that would include Russia. Secretary of State James Baker and the Reagan administration, along with the German foreign minister Hans-Dietrich Genscher, assured the Soviet leader that if Germany was unified, NATO would not be extended beyond the new borders. 
The commitment not to expand NATO, also made by Great Britain and France, appeared to herald a new global order. We saw the peace dividend dangled before us. The promise that the massive expenditures on weapons that characterized the Cold War would be converted into expenditures on social programs and infrastructures that had long been neglected to feed the insatiable appetite of the military. So my first question for you is, what happened? The arms industry saw a multi-billion dollar bonanza, which was converting the militaries in the former communist bloc to be NATO compatible. Uh, And that's what happened. Now, every politician and statesperson that I spoke with, I mean, I, I don't, I can't think of anyone who advocated the expansion of NATO. Uh, I mean, the tragedy was that Gorbachev, Yeltsin, and we forget in the early years of Putin, there was an attempt, uh, a very serious attempt on the part of Russia to build a joint security pact. We can't forget the trauma that Russia endured in the Second World War when the Nazis invaded uh, all the way to Moscow and devastated that uh, you know whole swaths of the Soviet Union. Of course, that was repeated a century earlier by Napoleon. Uh, you know, they have legitimate fears of being encircled. And uh, this was the Tehran conference, the primary issue between Stalin, Roosevelt, and Churchill was carving up Eastern Europe in a way to protect the Soviet Union, to make it feel secure. And both the Americans and the British realized that as a necessity. This was also true in 1989. But unfortunately, that was completely abandoned. And there were a series of agreements. So you had the agreement not to expand NATO beyond the borders of a unified Germany. Then the Clinton administration, and of course it did. There's now a missile base in Poland 100 miles from the uh, Russian border. Clinton then promised that uh, he would not station NATO troops in Eastern Europe. We now have thousands of NATO troops in Eastern Europe. There was the of course, the Minsk agreement that uh, nobody ever honored. Uh, there was a promise not to intervene in the internal affairs of border countries like the Ukraine. It wasn't honored. So what has happened, of course, is preemptive war, which is under post-Nuremberg law is a criminal war of aggression. There's no way around it. And Russia is guilty, but they were baited and they took the bait and they pulled the trigger. And that's kind of the tragedy of what's happened. So were you surprised? I wasn't. So a lot of people were predicting that uh, he wouldn't go beyond the separatist regions. I think he overreached. I think he should have stayed in the separatist regions. But I wasn't surprised for this reason. I I spent 20 years covering war, and I'm well aware of information or disinformation as being a fundamental component to war. So for instance, in the first Gulf War, when I was with uh, the Marine Corps on the border with Kuwait, uh, there was a huge propaganda black kind of information campaign to make the Iraqis think that it would be a seaborne, a coastal invasion, and it worked. They played around with days, you know, so the Iraqis were thrown off balance as to when it would happen. This is always true in war. And uh, after the Nazis took Alsace-Lorraine, they mounted these speakers and had a huge peace offensive. And so I didn't believe anything coming out of the Kremlin. Am I surprised that he did it? I'm surprised that he did it because I think it's really counterproductive. And so on that, from a kind of strategic or tactical sense, yes. But I wasn't surprised that he was lying because that's what every country on the inception of a war does. 
you quote in your article a diplomatic cable that was obtained and released by WikiLeaks. Right. And it was dated February 1st, 2008, written from Moscow and addressed to the Joint Chiefs of Staff or NATO-European Union Cooperative National Security Council, Russia-Moscow Political Collective, Secretary of Defense, and Secretary of State. And you say that there was this understanding that expanding NATO risks an eventual conflict with Russia, especially over Ukraine. Well, that's all in that cable. Right. I mean, that was that was the general understanding. So I could have quoted George Kennan or all sorts of other people, but the cable is kind of interesting because they actually talk about how divisive NATO membership would be to the Ukraine, what it would do to domestic politics, that it would create an opening for Russian intervention. This is 2008. And that the Russian establishment would be encouraged to meddle in internal affairs in the Ukraine and the U.S., would then meddle with opposing forces. And this would put, in their words, U.S. and Russia in a classic confrontational posture. And that's exactly where we are. It says in the memo, right, not only does Russia perceive encirclement by NATO and efforts to undermine Russia's influence in the region, but it also fears unpredictable and uncontrolled consequences, which would seriously affect Russian security interests. Experts tell us that Russia is particularly worried that the strong divisions in Ukraine over NATO membership with much of the ethnic Russian community against membership could lead to a major split involving violence or at worst, civil war. And then you describe how it was for these reasons, right, among these reasons that Obama blocked arms sales to Ukraine. Yeah, which was prudent and smart. Right. And then, of course, reversed by Trump. Right. And then by Biden, because you had in this kind of unbelievable, but surely by now, I guess, believable and predictable move. But you saw these, you know, Democrats. I mean, you're like the last person to be surprised by this, but all these Democrats up in arms and accusing, you know, Trump of being a traitor because they wanted him to reverse Obama's position, which he ultimately did. And then so did Biden. Why do you think Obama took that prudent decision that then? Well, because he understood that it was dumping gasoline on the conflict. Right. But why do you think Biden hasn't done that? Well, because Biden's failed at everything else. I mean, his presidency is a disaster. His opinion poll ratings are in the tank. His Build Back Better bill is gutted. All of his promises, like forgiving student loans and raising the minimum wage to $15 an hour, have been forgotten. The moratorium on foreclosures, the extended child tax credit, all the assistance that people got is now being terminated. So what's better than a war? Uh, Now we got the EU just announced that they're going to allocate hundreds of millions of euros to buy weapons. Germany just said it would triple its defense budget. Biden has asked Congress for $6.4 billion for the Ukraine. And this is on top of the $650 million in military aid that they've given the Ukraine. It's absolute insanity, especially because Russia is a nuclear power, as Putin reminded everyone. Uh, And uh, you know, these these kind of merchants of death who are making tons of money off of this and made tons of money off of expanding NATO, uh, you know, at this point, I mean, overdramatic, but they're flirting with a nuclear holocaust. It's just nuts. And what about your experience reporting? I want to know what insight that has given you into what it looks like when people are armed to fight in these wars without a lot of training. Like what experiences that you saw do you feel like it's important for people to know about who haven't done reporting? Well, first of all, handing out automatic weapons to people who don't know one end of an AK-47 from another is uh, just suicidal. 
So I covered the war in Kosovo. And at one point, I was in northern Albania with the Kosovo Liberation Army. And all these kids, Albanian kids who were working in Germany and restaurants and stuff, were showing up in northern Albania. And they'd shove a weapon in their hands, give them two days of training. And I went with them with a group of 600 people up over the mountains. And they were just slaughtered because they don't know what they're doing. So the media loves this kind of heroic narrative of mothers making Molotov cocktails. But the dark reality is that you're just setting them up to be killed. You've turned people who have no training or understanding of how to wage warfare into targets. I find it just criminal. And do you feel like any reporters out there in remotely mainstream outlets ever speak to that? I haven't seen it. I mean, it you know, war creates a kind of jingoism, and the media is the worst. They create these simplistic narratives. You're right, they don't talk about uh, Putin's, I think, very legitimate uh, grievances. And uh, it, Putin becomes Hitler. Everybody becomes Hitler. Saddam Hussein was Hitler. Whoever we fight becomes Hitler, and we all become Saving Private Ryan. And it has nothing to do with the reality on the ground. But that narrative, that kind of mythic narrative in war, it's what people want to hear. It's what the networks want to broadcast. It's what the public eats up. It's very hard to counter it and keep your job. (laughs) Oh, right. Yeah. And can you, for people who don't know, can you share about your experience at the New York Times and why it ended? Well, I'd spent seven years in the Middle East. I was the Middle East bureau chief for the New York Times. I realized, like all Arabists, that the invasion of Iraq was arguably the worst strategic decision in American history for all the reasons we now know. But to say that was a career killer. I mean, other friends of mine who worked in the Middle East, their opinion wasn't any different from mine. They were just smart enough not to open their mouths. And it was all careerism. It had nothing to do with the reality. Most of the people they trotted out to feed the you know narrative of Bathis embracing us as liberators, etc., didn't know what they were talking about. And if you didn't feed that dominant narrative, even though I had that kind of experience, including the fact that I speak Arabic, you were just shut out. That's what kind of always happens, especially in wartime. So I was uh, booed off of a commencement stage and told by the Times, no, I couldn't speak about the war anymore, and I left. Speaking of the media and their complicity, there is an interesting clip. Brad, could we play the clip from the Fox Sunday? So this is none other than Condoleezza Rice being interviewed on Fox. Well, and I have argued that when you invade a sovereign nation, that is a war crime. <laughs> I mean, I think we're at, at, at just a real basic, basic point there. Well, um, I'd, I'd agree. It is certainly against every principle of international law and international order. And that's why throwing the book at them now in terms of economic sanctions and punishments is also a part of it. And I think the world is there. Uh, certainly NATO is there. He's he's managed to unite NATO in ways that I didn't think I would ever see again after the end of the Cold War. Really? Yeah. yeah. So you kind of can't make this up, right? It's Well, she just made a case for why she should be in prison. Yeah. Condoleezza Rice. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, of course. I mean, I, you know, preemptive war is a crime. Uh, it, it is. And it's not excusable. When we do it, and it's, I'm also don't excuse the Russians when they do it. Right. But she, I wonder how she would, I mean, I have no idea if anyone would ever ask her how to justify those two things, to reconcile those two positions. She's pretty good at pseudo-intellectual babble, though, so I'm sure she'd pull it off nicely. Well, she would never, I mean, the journalists are complicit. Come on. Right, exactly. No one would ever ask her that, right? 
you can't you can't get on Fox or CNN if you're going to ask a real question or raise a real point. Right. There's a lot of misinformation that's going around. I wanted to show you this one tweet that's interesting. I'm not sure who this is. It's FR News Now. They tweeted this thing, this video, and it has, you know, 880,000 views on Twitter. And they claim that this is a video of a brave little girl confronting Putin's army, says, go back to your country. And then the hashtag is defend Ukraine, Ukraine, Russia, war, Ukraine. Those are all the hashtags. Go back to your country, brave little girl, confronts invading Putin's army. Okay, this is, of course, shockingly not February Ukraine. A lot of people respond to this, but I said, hi, FR News Now, are you going to update this and explain you confuse Ukraine with Palestine? It's an understandable mistake, given how much this looks like winter in Ukraine. That's Ayad Tamimi yelling at an Israeli soldier. So they took this image of a now young woman who was, I guess, a little girl yelling at an Israeli soldier and are pretending that this is happening right now in Russia and these things are going viral. But it is an interesting comparison because the language of liberation, the discourse around liberation and freedom and sovereignty that you see around Russia and Ukraine is very different from the one that you see about Israel-Palestine. Could you talk about those? Well, yeah, because Ukrainians are, Ukrainians are white. Yeah. You know, I mean, I, I dealt with this in Bosnia. So what, what about Yemenis? What about Palestinians? Yes, there's not a lot of Palestinian flags. There is a racial overtone of, you know, black and brown bodies don't count. Yeah. So uh, people don't know anything about the Ukraine, of course. I don't know. It looks to me like a good excuse to not waste your time on Twitter. Yeah, that's true. <laughs> I mean, but but as you said, I mean, there's all these examples. People talk that there is a, a European journalist saying that this is so different from him because these are blonde hair and blue eyed people. Alan McLeod compiled a good thread on Twitter. One of the good reasons to be on Twitter where he went through some of them. But what other lessons do you have from reporting? Well, the most important lesson is you don't, you can't, once you begin to employ this kind of wholesale industrial violence, you can't determine where it's going to go and what it's going to lead to. And what really frightens me is the pumping in of the, these weapons into the Ukraine, which will just fuel the conflict, of course. And uh, who knows where it will lead, especially when you couple it with sanctions that are clearly designed to destroy the Putin government. That's their goal, is to destroy Putin. So, I mean, you see it. Putin is really uh, enraged. And I, I just don't see how this is productive to anyone, to the Ukrainians. You know, they won't fight for the Ukrainians, of course. Uh, same thing with Georgia. They pump weapons into Georgia. But boy, the, a bloodbath, sure. And they'll keep it going as long as they can. And that's what I just find unconscionable. There should be a moratorium on weapons. There should be, I think, uh, Moscow has every right to, uh, especially given the number of countries in Eastern Europe that are now NATO allies, they have every right to ask that the Ukraine remain neutral. I just don't think that's an unreasonable request. They have every right to ask that NATO troops be removed from Eastern Europe. They have every right to dismantle that missile base. I mean, we almost had a nuclear showdown with the Soviet Union over missiles in Cuba. That was 90 miles off the coast of Florida. So, you know, part of the job as a foreign correspondent is always, uh, that why I saw it as my job, 
is to step into the shoes of another people, another culture, another country, and explain how they think and why they think the way they do to an American audience. But that, again, is kind of the death of news. Foreign correspondents don't exist. When they do exist, they're not multilingual. They're not based in the region, usually. They're parachuted in, and they repeat the kind of jingoism that their editors, their public, and their advertisers want to hear. But it only makes everything worse. Someone asked about NATO expansion. You write about it, obviously, in your piece. But maybe a question to ask is why, I think a lot of people don't understand why NATO expansion is, they think of NATO as a defensive entity. Can you explain why NATO is threatening and dangerous? Well, because it's encircling Russia. And it is, Russia perceives NATO with much justification as a threat. They feel hemmed in. I mean, why did we perceive missiles in Cuba as a threat? How would we feel if Canada or Mexico were suddenly host to thousands of Russian troops with military bases, including missile bases along our border? I, I don't think it's an unreasonable fear on the part of the Russians, especially given their history. Uh, it was totally unnecessary. I mean, it was only done for the arms market. It was only done for the weapons manufacturers who've not only made a killing, but are now making more of a killing off of the conflict in the Ukraine. The only reason we stuck around in Afghanistan, we know that from the Afghan papers, everybody knew it was a fiasco, was because the private contractors and Raytheon and Lockheed Martin were making money hand over fist. And, you know, these people need a conflict. Uh, They're totally irresponsible. And if it's not Russia, it'll be China. They don't care as long as they can keep selling weapons. And uh, I mean, our, our military budget is what, nine or 10 times more than the next 10 countries combined. It's an insanity. I mean, we have, we build nuclear weapons. It's not based on effectiveness. This was in the 50s. It's based on production capacity so that we can wipe out the same Soviet city 20 times. I mean, it's just nuts. If you watch this live, you are in luck. If you missed this live and you want to see the full chat, you can go to patreon.com slash the Katie Helper Show. Again, that's patreon.com slash the Katie Helper Show. Thanks again for listening to the Katie Helper Show. To hear the rest of that discussion, please join the Patreon at patreon.com slash the Katie Helper Show. Again, that's patreon.com slash the Katie Helper Show. If you like the show, please leave us a five-star review on iTunes. And as always, we remind you that this show could not happen without the support of our listeners. Our show is produced by me, Katie Halper, Nick Palm, Brad Bloom is our audio engineer and an associate producer on the show. Our researcher is Joshua Bregman. And our theme song is by the band Cordova. See you next time. 